Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. History was made this week in Israel when the country's entire Supreme Court of 15 justices was impaneled for an unprecedented hearing. Professor Yaniv Roznai, a constitutional scholar at Reichman University, was in the courtroom and witnessed all of the drama firsthand. Hi, Yaniv, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So to quickly, as briefly as I can, set the stage for the very complicated circumstances, the hearing was a deliberation of a law passed by the Knesset in July, which made a radical change in Israel's basic law for the judiciary. In Israel, our basic laws are the closest thing we have to a constitution. Now, nine months ago, Israel's Minister of Justice presented a package of laws which would drastically alter the separation of powers in Israel, taking the final say on the rule of law in most circumstances away from the courts and into the hands of the ruling politicians. The last nine months have seen a mass uprising against this move, with millions of Israelis taking to the streets to express their opposition. Days of disruption, strikes, military reservists saying they'll refuse to volunteer if the laws are passed, and signs of dire economic consequences if it happens. The law, altering what is known as the reasonableness standard, again was passed in July, and it was the first of this controversial judicial revolution to pass in the Knesset. And so on Tuesday, the Supreme Court sat to consider a long list of petitions against this law. Yaniv, did I get that basically right? More than that. It was perfect. <laughs> so before we get into the legal weeds, can you just tell us what it was like to be there in court? What was the atmosphere of a hearing in which a Supreme Court was basically deliberating the extent of its own power? Yeah, the environment was indeed uh, dramatic. People could sense this, uh, I don't know, like a constitutional moment that we are witnessing history in the making, uh, as you mentioned. Because first of all, this is indeed the first time that all 15 judges uh, on bank sit uh, at the court, and this is highly dramatic. And secondly, as you mentioned correctly, this is not an ordinary law that is being reviewed by the court. It is a basically a constitutional amendment. It's an amendment to basically the judiciary. And this might be the first time in the history of the court that the court declares that it has the authority to strike down uh, a basic law or an amendment to a basic law and perhaps even striking it down indeed. Uh, and this would be uh, uh, presidential. Uh, so, so indeed a dramatic day. As simply as possible, can you explain what the reasonableness standard is, how it's been used in the past in Israel, and what this change in the law would do to it? Yeah, very briefly, reasonableness is a doctrine in administrative law that exists in Israel since the establishment of the state. Uh, the idea is that you can, the court can intervene in a decision of a minister or an administrative if it is extreme unreasonable. Now, here, some kind of shift occurred in 1980. Before that, the rule was that of the court can intervene only in an extreme, unreasonable case, only when the decision is, you know, far-fetched uh, or completely irrational. Uh, and in 1980, this has changed to a more balancing formula. And the new test for reasonableness is the following. 
The court reviews whether the minister or the administrator has considered all proper considerations and has given them the proper weight. That's the important thing, which basically allows the court much more room for inter, uh, to intervene in administrative decisions. And the court has used it uh, uh, not so many times, uh, but basically in issues that the government doesn't like. For example, uh, in the appointments of ministers or vice ministers. So the court ruled, for example, that if there is a minister that is now indicted, criminally indicted for severe crimes like corruption, it would be unreasonable to keep him in office. This is the famous Ariaderi case, uh, which the court also used very recently uh, to remove Derry uh, from office as a minister. Uh, this is, in a nutshell, the reasonless doctrine. Those are the big headline cases, though. But also, you know, even in much, um, I guess, smaller uh, issues that affect private citizens directly, it's intervened using reasonableness, no? Yes. So I said that the court, the Supreme Court, hasn't used it quite often, but this is only because in the everyday, now the administration, they know that they have to act in a reasonable manner and take everything into consideration. Let me give you just one example from the everyday. Assuming that the municipality of Tel Aviv now places all the garbage cans uh, uh, of my neighborhood near my building just because there is enough space there. So they have considered one consideration, the, fun- the, the functional one, but they haven't considered you know, the inconvenience to my neighbors, the health issues, the environmental issues to, uh, uh, that are related to my, na- to my building and my neighbors. So I can go to the court and say this is an unreasonable decision. Mm-hmm. Basically, reasonableness is a very common standard for the everyday uh, actions that all the administration, that all the executive branches uh, uh, or organs uh, exercise every day. So the new law isn't getting rid of reasonableness entirely, though. It's just making certain officials uh, not accountable to be reasonable. It's taking away the power that the court has over a certain level of leader politician, right? Exactly. It's, It's a bit bizarre. So on the one hand, the government... And the Knesset are saying, look, you, the government, the cabinet and the ministers are still obliged by the reasonableness standard. You have to act in a reasonable manner. But that amendment actually removed the ability of the court, of any court, to review the reasonableness of the actions. So basically, this is one of the judges, Justice Groskov, said yesterday, basically what you want you don't want to uh, be abide by the rule of law. You said in Hebrew, uh, you You want to have a law, but you don't want to have a judge. Basically, you want to have a law, but you don't want to have anybody to hold you accountable for behaving under that law. Exactly, which basically means there is no law, because if the law says you cannot drive in red light, but no one will ever enforce it, so why would you abide by that law? Uh, so that's highly problematic. But it's also problematic because the government said, look, we're only limiting reasonless only when it comes to the government, I mean, the cabinet and the ministers, the, the entire bureaucracy, the entire administration is still bound by reasonless. The problem with this argument is that according to our law, every minister can take for himself a decision by an administrator that is subordinated to him or her. Uh, so basically, it, the, the potential of that law is that reasonless will simply be removed from all 
administrative decisions. Right. All, but, all, a minister, all a minister would have to say is, oh, it was my decision. It wasn't that administrative decision. I did it and I'm immune. So exactly. All they need to do is to sign that decision. OK, so back to the courtroom for a minute. The main players there were the legal advisor to the Knesset, the attorneys for the petitioners, um, a representative for the attorney general. Now, in a normal hearing, right, the attorney general represents the government. But in this case, we had the attorney general's office opposing the law, arguing against the position. And so a private attorney for the government was appointed, an attorney named Ilan Bombach. How unusual is it for the attorney general to refuse to represent the government? Yeah, it's quite unusual. It doesn't happen very often. And, and here it was extremely unusual because not only did the attorney general refuses to defend that approach and, and defend the law at court, but we need to again to remember that this is a basic law. So I think it's for the first time in the history, the attorney general is actually of the opinion that a basic law should be struck down for violating the core values of the state as a democratic state. That is super dramatic. So speaking of drama, let's go over what you think or, you know, what I observed, too, were the most dramatic moments of the hearing yesterday. Uh, the first that I noticed was the confrontation between uh, a member of Knesset, Simcha Rotman, who's the chair of the Constitutional Committee, and the justices. Uh, Rotman basically challenged the legitimacy of this entire hearing, and he was saying some pretty insulting things. What did you think of what uh, Rotman did? Tell us, you know, what your impressions were of him. Yeah, I thought it was totally inappropriate. Simcha Rotman was, was granted the, the authority to speak for as, as chair of the Constitutional Committee, but he basically gave uh, a political populist speech. This was a speech not to the judges. It was, we need to remember, it was all videoed yeah, and broadcast to the, to the entire nation. And he simply gave a speech to his electorate, uh, to his political base. That's the way I see it. And the, and the judges were extremely kind in letting him talk, M much more kind than he was to the uh, people he invited to the, uh, to the committee during the legislative process, I, I must add. He called them olig an oligarchy. He said they were elitists. He said um, uh, that if they, with their power, power in too few hands um, of 15 people end up protecting interests, but by but only their own interests. I mean, it was very, um, very vicious, I think. Yeah, and it was very nice. That he, I mean, he, at one point he said, well, all you're thinking about is your own. Uh, I would translate kavod here as probably honor yeah. uh, not as dignity or, or respect. Uh, and and the, the, the chief justice, the president of the Supreme Court, Estechayut, he said, excuse me, we're not dealing here with, with honor or nothing like that. We are dealing here with law. And that was super appropriate to make clear that to make clear that we're not dealing here with politics and stuff like that. And another moment that struck me was when the government's lawyer, Ilan Baumbach, was basically uh, in his argument that uh, that the law would not erode Israel's democratic character. He seemed to be at one point disparaging the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, exactly. That was an astonishing moment because the judges were trying to push the lawyers and tell them, look, from where do you get your authority, you as the Knesset, actually to enact basic law? Where does this authority derive from? And apparently, you know, chronologically speaking, the source of authority is the Declaration of Independence, uh, according to which there are supposed to be elections to consider an assembly. And from that on, the Knesset received its authority. Uh, and at a certain point, 
uh, uh, Elon Bombach said, oh, come on, how, how is it even possible that the Declaration of Independence that was written by a small group of people in a very qu quick time yeah. uh, uh, is now binding upon us future generations? Uh, and this was quite an insult for the Declaration of Independence, which is probably one of the most important documents of the Jewish people uh, in our history. And that is supposed to be what we call uh, the uh, anima amin, the vision, the, the, what we believe, the core values of, this, of, the, of the new state that was just born. Uh, and, and, and the argument is, and, and the reason they're going to, you know, to talk even about the Declaration of Independence is because the argument is as follows. You, the Knesset, even when you enact a basic law or amend a basic law, you are still subordinated to the core values of the state as reflected in the Declaration of Independence because you derive your authority from that document. Right. So then they ask him, they, they say, so what's your source of authority? If it's not the Declaration of Independence, then, you know, what do the basic laws rest on? And he said that the it's a foundational text and we value this text, but it doesn't give it judicial validity. So how big a challenge is that to the very foundations of Israeli law? What, what I mean, if you're if you're not looking at those values as sort of your guiding light, what do you look to to rest law on in Israel? Yeah, and then he said, which was quite, I think, the most one of the most important points or or, or, uh, or episodes in this uh, in this drama. He said, "Look, we get our authority from the people, from the nation, Aam. Right? The people are the sovereign, and we get our authority from them. And there can be no limitations on the power of the people. And therefore, the court has no authority to review our actions when we enact the basic law because this is the supreme law." of our land, and it is only the people that can then judge us. So we are only accountable to the people. And then he was asked by the, by the judges, okay, if we accept that approach, but what if you will amend the basic laws in a way that would undermine election laws or will undermine the right to be uh, uh, elected or the right to vote? Uh, then how can elections be the guardians of these core values? And he did not have a good answer. For that question, uh, he tried to avoid it because there is no good answer. If we say, or if the court will say, that there is no authority for the court to review basic laws, and we need to remember that unlike the US, where it is almost impossible to amend the constitution, in Israel to amend the basic law, all you need is an ordinary majority of two versus one or one versus zero, and to write in the law basic law, to give it the title basic law, and then that's it. You can even do it in one day, in a single day. Uh, so if we accept his approach that there are no some kind of judicial oversight over basic laws, this means that the Knesset, an ordinary majority, would have absolute powers. And if we accept that approach, then we don't need the rest of the judicial overhaul. You don't need the notwithstanding clause and you don't need to capture the judges because all you need to do is to enact any problematic law as a basic law. Yeah, why, why not make every single law a basic law? Exactly. And this is unacceptable. And another way that one of the uh, justices was poking holes in his argument that it rests on the people. OK, so you feel like the government has done something unfair to you and you want to uh, turn for redress to fix your problem to the government. You can't go to the court. So what do you do as a citizen? You have to create a political party and you have to introduce legislation and you have to get a law passed that fixes whatever problem it is that the government made for you. That's apparently the, the solution now. Yeah, that's quite a ridiculous. Let's wait till the next elections 
And in the meanwhile, whatever harm has happened will, will just happen. But it's more than that. You know, if we look in a, in a broader context, we need to remember that our Knesset, which is supposed to be our representative body, first, it's a small organ. We have 120 Knesset members, you know, like in New Zealand with, with 5 million people. Uh, so maybe it was representative in January 1949. It certainly doesn't reflect the representational needs of 2023. But more than that, it is not just a small body, you know, objectively or compar- comparatively to other countries. It is also small in compared to the very big size of the government. We have a very strong government. So you have 120 uh, Knesset members. You need to deduct from that 30 or 35 ministers or vice ministers and the chairs of the committees and the speaker of the Knesset and his deputies. We are left with a very small number of Knesset members, 70-something, that are supposed to be all the legislative and, and, super, and supervisory uh, duties. This is simply ridiculous. Yeah, speaking of the Knesset, another dramatic moment. We had a member of the Knesset from the Likud, Tali Gottlieb, uh, interrupting, yelling from the back benches that the Knesset uh, sanctifies and preserves democracy. And Esther Chayut, the chief justice, very politely telling her that, uh, you know, it's not the Knesset, so you don't yell from the back benches. Yeah, we talked about drama. This is more of a parody, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, the, the, these moments. It was acceptable, you know, it was expected. Uh, we all waited for that moment when she will shout, and, and that's it. No one, I think, takes it too seriously. So you touched on this already, but it kind of felt like there were two levels of debate and discussion going on. One was taking the reasonableness law in a microcosm. Should or shouldn't that law be overturned? And then there was the the zoom out, the arguments over whether, in principle, the Supreme Court should have the power to overrule or alter any basic law enacted by the Knesset uh, as opposed to regular laws. And the second discussion was naturally signaling what will happen if some of the other laws in the judicial overhaul are enacted. And those are kind of two different issues because you can look at reasonableness and you can say, okay, maybe we need to leave this one alone, but they want to leave the door open to be able to uh, justify or to leave the infrastructure in place if they think that the other uh, laws should be overruled or nullified. Justice Amit said that historically democracy dies in a series of small steps, and he was clearly pointing at the series of other judicial overhaul laws that may come in front. What did you feel about the dynamic of you know reasonableness in a microcosm and reasonableness as one part, the first part of the package of how the justices dealt with that? Yes, I was a bit disappointed by, by, by that. I mean, all judges, and I, I, I totally understand that, they all focused on the, the, the law that was challenged, uh, you know, before the court. But it's a bit, uh, how will I say, it's very difficult to analyze this amendment on its own uh, uh, while disregarding the, the, the larger context. Because all members of the, you know, high members of the coalition and ministers, they all tell us that this amendment is simply the, the silence that would open the appetite for the rest of the judicial overhaul. And the problem is that it's not just one law, but it's a very crucial law that would then enable the rest of the judicial overhaul. And the reason is that once we abolish reasonableness, then it would be much easier to get rid of various gatekeepers who are supposed to be independent and replace them with unindependent or yes-men by the government. And then once you've removed those independent gatekeepers, it, would be, it will become much easier 
to do other things, to go to the other uh, uh, steps of the judicial overhaul. And this also goes to the argument that the government was all the time trying to push. What do you want about the reasonableness? There are other standards like conflict of interest or proportionality or irrelevant considerations. And that is true. But in order to enforce these other standards, you need strong gatekeepers. You need independent gatekeepers. You need strong legal advisors to the governmental departments. And if you won't have that, then it doesn't really matter. And, and also, we've heard members of the coalition saying, well, the next thing that we'll do is to limit proportionality. So once they remove reasonness because they don't feel like you know, being restricted by it, what assures us that they will not in the second stage remove the other standards? So I think here, perhaps, uh, it would be impossible not to draw the line. You know the justices. You know their opinions, their stances on previous issues. You watched them yesterday as they asked their questions. Did you get any indications or clues from what you saw as to the chances that a majority of this court and it will strike this law down and remind us how big a majority would be necessary? So it's quite difficult to, to predict. Also, because we need to remember that some of the judges, because it was all judges sitting, some of the judges are relatively new and we don't really know what their uh, opinion is about these issues. Uh, I think from what I can understand, it seems like there is quite a large majority of judges that would accept the proposition that the court has the authority to strike down basic laws. And this is, I think, perhaps the most important issue, uh, because in the past, while the court has already declared that the Knesset is limited in its authority when enacting a basic law, it never held that it has the authority to strike down an amendment that uh, undermines those core values of the state as Jewish and democratic. So this would be uh, one of the, probably the most important uh, parts of the decision. But then the second part is whether this is the case to intervene, whether the judges will indeed strike down the law or part of it. And here it's very difficult to predict. Uh, me and my colleagues were still since yesterday trying to uh, make guesses between ourselves and, and it's very hard to say. But I will say this, it is not a binary thing of whether striking down or not striking down, because there is a, a spectrum of constitutional remedies in the middle. So, for example, the court can, in a way, interpret the law very narrowly. So to limit away, to, to limit or to mitigate the, the infringement or the problems of the law. And then if it uh, interprets very narrowly, then it wouldn't have to strike it down. Or it can also strike down just part of the law. Uh, while keeping the, the, the rest of it uh, in place. So there are, there are different um, uh, possible, more nuanced remedies that the court can use. And there's the possibility that they could choose not to strike it down and yet make a very strong statement on the issue of their right to strike down other basic laws that they feel are unconstitutional, right? Yes. I think there's a quite a high probability that, that this will be the outcome. Projecting into the future, which, you know, we don't always love to do, but, you know, we have to do it. <laughs> Can you imagine a scenario playing out in which the Netanyahu government does not abide by a ruling nullifying this law? And if that happens, what comes next? Even if we heard uh, some members of the coalition, for example, the Speaker of the Knesset and others, saying that they will not abide 
by this ruling, I have to say, I do not see any way, any way that the government refuses to abide by a Supreme Court ruling. I don't see it happening because the, the, this would mean a complete anarchy. If the government doesn't abide by court's ruling, why would ordinary citizens abide? And just imagine what it means for our partners, the EU and the US, if we don't abide by court's ruling. I, I have to admit, I don't see it happening. This would be a complete destruction of the rule of law. But theoretically, could you see maybe the, the political level refusing to abide by it, but yet the civil servants agreeing to abide by it? If the government, if the, if the politicians will say we will not abide by it, I have no doubt that the bureaucracy and the high officials, and I mean, you know, military, police, security services, etc., they will all abide by court's ruling. And, and again, we need to put aside some statements by different, you know, people from the coalition than what the government will actually do. And when it comes to the to the final point, the government will abide by court ruling. This entire episode, I mean, climaxing in this hearing, but really what we've been going through over the past nine months, it's been sort of a, a magnifying glass on the flaws of Israel's democracy. Um, have you learned a great deal about what it seems that we're lacking? What led to this point? I mean, you've studied it. This is what you do. This is your focus of study and how it can be fixed. Can it be fixed without trying to enact some sort of constitution? Have you given a lot of thought to that? The, the first thing that we have to do in order to put this whole crisis in a way, not behind it, because the liberal camp, you know, is now, is now awakened and uh, they have various demands, but I think what Israel needs most is basic law legislation. It is the basic law that would regulate once and for all the rules of the political game, how we enact basic law, what is the difference between enacting a basic law and legislating ordinary laws. And in addition to that, the enactment of uh, the right to equality, which is a fundamental right that exists in all modern you know, democratic constitutions. And once we have these two things uh, enacted, then this would put Israel in a much better place and it would stabilize the complete uh, relationship between the branches. This is what we need most. But you're still talking basic laws. You're not using the C word for constitution. Does that mean that you think at this point in Israel's history, trying to get uh, some sort of decision uh, with a wide consensus on an actual constitution is impossible? It's always a possibility. And we, we are now witnessing a constitutional moment, obviously, in Israel, where we have mass mobilization, you know, of people talking about high politics, about the rule of law and democracy and judicial independence. So this is without a doubt a constitutional moment. But because we already have a constitution making in process, through the enactment of basic laws that are chapters, in, in a way, in our constitution, we don't really need now a constituent assembly that would sit and draft a completely new constitution. This might happen, and I'm in favor, but we can solve the, the major issues through, a complete, to, through completing the project of basic laws. All we need is three more basic laws. Basic law fundamental rights to enact those rights that were not yet you know, uh, written down in a basic law, basic law legislation, the most important one, and some kind of a preamble, basic law declaration of independence uh, that would be more declaratory in nature. And then we're done. Uh, 90% of what we need is there. 
That's the big picture. But right now, to put out the flames on what's going on here, even from the very beginning, we've had talk of negotiations. We've been talk of a compromise. We have the president of the country, Isaac Herzog, trying to bring the two sides together. We know how divided and impossible things look politically. But on a legal level, do you see any real possibility for compromise between what this government seems determined to do in terms of the judicial revolution and those who want to keep Israel a liberal democracy? Or do you feel like this battle is going to have to continue until one side wins and the other loses? I don't think one side needs to win. I think the vast majority of Israelis want things to calm down. I think that there is a, there are you know wide areas of agreement, what we call almost contenders, uh, among uh, 80% of the people. And so we can reach to broad agreements, even about major reforms you know, in the judicial system, but balanced ones and reforms that would put Israeli democracy in a better place, uh, not destroying the system. This is what we need. We need corrections, not destructions. Was this the first time Supreme Court hearing was televised live on Israeli television? No, no, no. The, the, in the last few years, there were various uh, important uh, debates in, in the court that were uh, live on television. Uh, and this is not the first time. I'm in the opinion that all Supreme Court hearings should be you know, live on television. I think it's very good for the public confidence in the court. Those who have witnessed uh, the court yesterday or watched uh, on television, they saw uh, a group of judges that are, you know, humane, that are diverse, that are clever. They all came prepared. They are professional and very far from that picture that, you know, the populists uh, are trying to portray of the judges, if it's a detached elite, left-wing elite. No, those who looked on television saw Israeli judges who reflect the entire population. And this is what we need. As someone who watches these things, did it seem like the justices were playing to the cameras or knew they were speaking to the people and not just to the lawyers in front of them? I'm not sure, perhaps making sta- some statements more accessible, you know, to the public, not to speak in a too legalese language, uh, I think in that respect. But perhaps the lawyers were speaking more to the people, but not the judges. Just to sum up, uh, Yaniv, I can't help remembering that you were really the first person I interviewed on the podcast about the judicial overhaul, the judicial revolution, even before it happened. Because even before Yariv Levine got up there and announced it, you were ringing the alarm bells back in December about the government's intention to pass an override clause, which would allow the Knesset to override the the Supreme Court. You were really on the on the cutting edge of, of warning about this. I'm wondering if you rewind back to December, if you could have foreseen that this is the situation as it would look in September of 2023? No, no, never in my worst nightmares. Uh, We've all anticipated some of the moves of the government. We knew that they will try to undermine or limit the court, to change the way judges are selected in order to capture the court. Uh, But no one ever anticipated first that the proposals by the government would be so extreme, so extreme, no one anticipated. And second, we did not anticipate the public backlash and this really impressive and awesome civil protestations that have been taking place uh, for, I think, almost 40 weeks now. And it is really astonishing. But it is also, you know, all the world is watching because the world is is wondering how to battle uh, the democratic uh, backsliding around the world. And we might be 
you know, one success story. And I hope it will be such a success story. Well, I hope so, too. On that optimistic note, <laughs> um, we'll wrap up. Yaniv, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Yaniv Roznai, to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>